Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 7th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Professor Brian McCraw's rapid review report into the so-called IT glitch, which resulted in women not getting smear test results, was published yesterday. Letters were never sent to 870 women. Another 3,200 never got their results, but they had been sent to their GPs. That's more than 4,000 women who were never communicated with. A woman called Sharon and her persistence to get her results has brought this latest cervical check failure to light. The Chief Executive Officer of the HSE, Paul Reid, said he is really sorry over the undue concern that this has caused women and he apologised sincerely to all of the women. Neve Smith is a TD for Cavan Monaghan and President of Fianna Falls Women's Network and on the line. And a very good morning to you, Deputy Smith. Thanks for your time. All apologies once again, but little in the way of accountability, it seems. It seems uh, that uh, this uh, was uh, a rush to get things done, uh, that no proper due diligence was done before the Quest Laboratory undertook additional tests because it it was November last year that uh, they offered these free tests to women. So there was the routine smears as well as the free repeat tests uh, that Quest were asked to do, but they didn't check or validate if their computer system could integrate with the processes here. Absolutely, Michael, and it's another shocking uh, day, I suppose, for women's health care right across the country. And as you said, only for the advocates that we know as Sharon, um, who's had a, her own personal um, difficulties and health difficulties, uh, who persisted with this, who knows would the 4,088 women affected by this IT glitch even know or have the results today. Uh, and as you said, I mean, this is, I suppose, symptomatic, obviously, of the HSC, where there seems to be complete complete underestimation and gross underestimation of the scale of the problem with cervical check. Um, women, of course, being at the brunt of it again. Mm. And there seems a real aversion almost to open disclosure with women because, as you said yourself, Vicky Phelan, Lorraine Walsh, Stephen Teep, these are people who have suffered personal tragedies. And only for these people being patient advocates uh, would we even have the information that we have today. And, you know, it has to be said that this again comes from the outsourcing of the cervical check smear tests. 
and um, there's certainly a question to be answered there and on this report that we have received yesterday even we know that, that one of the uh, recommendations is ultimately that the HSE with the support of the government needs to accelerate progress towards establishing our own mm. national la- laboratory towards cervical testing that removes that current high risk that there is there at the moment with the dependency of outsourcing as you said yourself this is an IT glitch and it would appear that the system that was in place while it should have been um, one that worked um, quite fr- uh, fl- freely in terms mm. of uh, its output to GPs in terms of letters and, and results, more importantly, the output to women, the patients affected who have had their smear tests done, that wasn't the case. And because of an IT glitch, we wake up this morning to another over 4,000 women who um within hopefully the next two weeks but up to this point as you quite rightly mm. laid out haven't had their smear test results Right, so uh, the smear tests uh, went to the laboratories uh, the results uh, have uh, been long completed but the women haven't been informed or in some cases uh, the 800 or so cases uh, the GPs ha- haven't been in- informed uh, but uh, some of the women still haven't been informed have they? No and I mean this is it. I, I, I've been reading this report and, and its findings and, you know, there is, um, I suppose, an intent with the best intention, I suppose, held at the heart of it all from the HSE's point of view that all of the women affected, so 4,800, mm. 4,088, would actually have the results within the next two weeks. Now, as you clearly said, Sharon, who has been identified only as Sharon, is a person who had constant and persistent um, correspondence with cervical check and that took over nine months and I know myself as a lot of TDs do around the country we've had women coming to us where we've had to put in parliamentary questions on specific cases where women could not get their mm. results and as we know there is a time frame for doing this and that was um, one of the strong criticisms in yeah. the report yesterday that yeah. women shouldn't have to look for information in such a way that they should be made available to them or they should be able to call cervical check and get them Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's just, you know, it's not putting women first and it's not putting their needs first. And it's this sort of, as Vicky Phelan so eloquently put it, deny, defend and delay mentality and culture within the HSE instead of being open and honest. And I think if if there was better communication, if there was an openness and an honesty, if there's a mistake made, be open and be frank about it and lay out how that mistake is going to be rectified. But this has been such a tragic story from start to finish. And like every couple of months, there seems to be a new crisis within cervical mm. check. And it is such a, an important part of women's health care. And it's a really... It is so important that women can have confidence, that they can have reassurance and that they feel that they're getting an honest and open um, communication from cervical check. And it really doesn't bode well in terms of confidence. Mm. Again, I suppose... As, well, as you put no- your confidence in cervical check. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Uh, you shouldn't o- have to oversee it. Uh, and it seems uh, that to some extent that's exactly what Sharon did and felt she had to do and probably was more diligent than most people would be because mm-hmm. of her previous history. She had been yeah. diagnosed with precancerous some 10 years ago so she was going for annual screening and undoubtedly she was always anxious uh, because uh, early intervention is uh, very important and that is the whole purpose of the smear test of cervical Absolutely and as you said like I mean for Sharon Sharon's case she was you know had precancerous cells over 10 years ago the anxiety and the worry that she must have carried for mm. months and months and months and like it has to be said and Dr McQueen has said that himself that only for her persistence 
would we actually have this information today that there was an IT glitch which has held mm. been the cause of over 4,000 women not having their smear test results. And she I mean, called and she rang, she phoned and she emailed and yeah. eventually she got so frustrated she said, look, I'm going to the media with this, I'm going to go yeah. to the press and uh, yeah. then she heard uh, from uh, the Minister's uh, personal assistant uh, and uh, then it transpired that there was an IT glitch and as it goes on uh, they discovered that what had happened was that the computers weren't sending out the test results to the yeah. women uh, yeah. and that was six months ago and some of these women still haven't received their results. I know, uh, I know and that's why it would be very difficult to see how the commitment that's given this morning uh, that all of these women would have their results in two weeks well I mean I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I, the women affected are sitting there with their fingers and toes crossed if that is the case, but it would mm. be hard to have confidence that that would be the case, considering the gross underestimation of the scale of the problem in the first place. As you know, I think it was back in June or July that we were told there were 800 women affected by this, when in mm. actual fact, it was five times that, yeah. well over 4,000. Um, you know, and, and this report, of course, also gives a commitment that there would be a dedicated man- project manager put in place um, with Quest Diagnostics to ensure that this wouldn't happen again and a matching program manager for cervical check needs to be appointed um, it, it, here in Ireland as well. And like, there are key, key positions that you and I would assume would actually be in place when it mm. transpires the part of the recommendations that these key positions are not in place, currently vacant, and there's a commitment there, of course, to deliver on that now. So, Well, vacant posts in the HSE is not unfamiliar and we're very familiar with hearing uh, that uh, certain sections of uh, the health service are understaffed and that seems to be the case with a cervical check again, yeah. that there have too many projects on their hands. But what about the length of delay in people getting their results? How significant is it uh, to wait six months uh, if there is a problem, if there is some huge. sort of warning? It's huge, it's huge. As we've seen so so tragically, in, in, in certain cases, um, you know, Stephen Teeth's wife is a prime example of that. Had she had her results, the outcome might have been very, very different. And I mean, it's 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 the delay, defend and deny culture again that is preventing women and not putting women's health care first. That so, is the critical point of all of this. So when the HSE tries to reassure women saying uh, that there's low risk associated uh, with uh, these test results, uh, you'd question that, would you? Well, I would. I would. I mean, as you said, we're told that they're low cl- clinical risk, the women who are affected by this. But I mean, that just doesn't bode any confidence for people. If you have a smear test made and you're waiting on results, it's a very anxious time at the best of times. And that's a six week wait. And, you know, I as a female um, politician and a normal woman who has, has had her own smear test, too, it is an anxious time waiting. I cannot imagine for the women who have had precancerous cells going back that this is a, you know, a traumatic time every time they go forward for screening, every time they have to wait for that envelope in the post, every time they're waiting for that phone call from their GP. And to think that these women, not alone their GPs weren't contacted, but the women themselves affected not to be contacted. And I suppose it's all down to interpretation as well as to how you would define what low risk is. I mean, you could argue, exactly. for, ex- you could argue for example, that one in 4,000 is low risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're that one in these 4,000 women, uh, you wouldn't see it that way, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, you're you're just playing with words here, really, when it comes down to it. Low risk, low clinical risk, all the rest. 
if you have a smear test and you're waiting on those results, it is anxious with your high risk or low risk or anything else. It is a very anxious time. And I suppose it's something that we always kind of did routinely for our own health and kind of took for granted, I suppose, until this whole debacle broke first with Vicky Phelan and Stephen Teep and mm. um, I suppose ever since that there's been a sort of a, a, almost you know firefighting with this whole part. And, and part of that was offering the repeat smears to women of course and I, I think most people would have welcomed that at the time. Of it, course of mm. course but I mean but it, no it led to these problems. You need to be honest about the service that you can deliver and you need to be frank. And if you're going to promise to deliver a mm. service, at least put the human resources in place to be able to deal with it. And we see part of the recommendations of this report this morning that recruitment is going to become, you know, a priority. Mm. Now, you would imagine that the recruitment and the strengthening of the cervical check was something that was done months and months ago, mm. considering the one catastrophe that's been after another. We're told this morning it's an absolute priority. I would have assumed it would have been already done and in place and as I said earlier the prior there are very key positions about a dedicated project manager for, for Ireland when it comes to uh, Quest Diagnostics and the same matching key person here in Ireland to think that those key positions um, are not in place and we're now talking about going full head steam ahead in, in terms of recruitment for, for cervical check is quite worrying when we're also committing to or when the government and HSE is committing to uh, allowing or ensuring that all the women affected are going to have their information within the next two weeks. Okay, I began by saying all apologies or uh, all apologies again, as uh, the case may be, but little in the way of uh, accountability, uh, and uh, that uh, is uh, another repeated scenario. Should there be uh, somebody held accountable for what happened in, in this particular case? Well, I mean, look at, I mean, we've seen the Scally report, we've seen the report this morning, and I think it, more than just a person or individual, it's a cultural thing. Uh, and I think all of the advocates who have spoken so and fought so strongly on this particular issue would say the same thing. It's a cultural shift that needs to put women's health care first, and that hasn't been happening. We still see that culture of deny, delay, defend. We need to, you know, eradicate all of that. And, if, you know, a, a, a recruitment in terms of new thinking, new ways of doing this in an open and honest and transparent culture is what we have to achieve. That is what we have to achieve because that hasn't been the case. Women have been stonewalled in terms mm. of getting the results, stonewalled in terms of getting the information. Again, I go back to the Sharon case. We see in the report that only for her correspondence through letters, through parliamentary questions, through social media, through actually contact and cervical check herself through contacting the minister herself. No woman should have to go through that. Least of all a woman who has pre-cancer cells dating back for the last 10 years and needs that information immediately okay. to be able to address whatever health issues she's facing in the future. Okay, but with problem after problem, uh, do you have confidence in cervical checks? Should women go for smear tests? I would absolutely advocate that women would still go uh, and make sure that they get their smear test done because at the end of the day, this is a problem that must be resolved um, the Minister for Health has to really get a handle on this and we certainly want, don't want to see any more debacles or any more, you know, IT glitches to, to be the cause of women not being able to get the health care that they need, to get the results that they need and not being, which is of course delaying them, putting in place the health care plans that they need. It has such a knock-on effect for the women affected, of course their spouses, their children, their whole families. It really is a very worrying time, but I would still advocate that cervical check does save lives. It is hugely mm. important and we must still do it. Okay, and there are literally thousands of women alive today because they went for Absolutely. those tests. We leave Absolutely. it there. Thank you indeed for joining Thank us you, uh, this Michael. morning. Neve Smith, a TD in Cavan Monaghan and President of Fianna Falls Women's Network. 
Now, as you've been hearing, uh, there is complete shock at uh, the news of uh, the death of uh, a 15-year-old Mikey Leddy from Navin who fell from a wall on Monday morning in Puerto del Carmen. We're joined by local councillor Tommy Riley. A very good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, People are finding it very hard to absorb this news and understandably so for such a a young boy in the first instance uh, and for the circumstance uh, that it was on a, a summer holiday uh, of uh, uh, enjoying himself with, with his family and to lose his life in such a tragic way. Good morning, Michael. Yes, it's a sad day for the family and a very sad day for the town of Navan. Um, so the Leddy family would be a well-known family in Navan, and the Kellys, likewise, in Slane would be very well-known on, on his mum's side. And for this to happen out on, on, on a holiday, uh, like it just, it's very hard to comprehend, you know, uh, I just don't know what the family must be state must be in at the moment. You know, a fifteen-year-old boy, mm. good, good athlete, um, good Gaelic footballer, good soccer player with Johnstown there, and all oh, the ladies would be involved with Navan O'Mahony's there down the years. So it's a, uh, it's just it's, it's it's very sad. You know, good lady, young sports sports guy for this to happen to. It's just tragic for the mm. family and for the town and for the clubs. Do we know what happened or how he... Seemingly, um, um, Michael, it was um, a wall or something that he fell off and mm. it hit the back of his head. I think that's simple, simple as it was, but it wasn't simple. It took the guy's life, you know. Mm. And it was quite a, a fall, it seems, uh, that he, he fell some 15 feet. Uh, there's something like that, yeah, something like that. It was a wall. Now I, can't, I can't say what right the wall was, right, but it was mm. this wall and he fell and took his head and mm. that, was, that, was, that was it. You know, it's um, ah, it's, it's very sad. The, the ladies would be a very well-known family and well-respected family. Navin as the Kellys would in Slane. You know, the Kellys mm. run, run a public house there in Slane, and well-known in the tourism industry. Mike Kelly is landed there, and the ladies in Navin would be very, very old natives of the town in Navin. Mm. Uh, and uh, it, it seems as though uh, whilst it's been reported that he fell from a, a wall, it, it might have been a, a light tower that he'd been at the base of this light tower, which lights up the beach and the garden area between the seafront and to the road. Uh, and he was trying to grab onto a lamppost or possibly a palm tree and lost his balance and fell that's the 15 the, feet that's, as a result. That's, that's the story, Michael. That's the story now. Uh, what, what, what truth is in that, I don't know. I, I, I on the family, well, everyone has different different views on what happened. You know what I mean? Your mm. stories, but no matter what the story is, it's a very sad and tragic for the family. Uh, family holiday that work hard and save to get a holiday for the family out there in the summer. Good, mm. hard working people, and it's just uh, a desperate morning now. Desperate. Yeah, de- desperate. It's hard to conceive uh, the shock that people must have been in at four o'clock in the morning, and from to endure the injuries after this fall. Uh, some of the reports are suggesting that he went into cardiac arrest and uh, received CPR. He was revived, uh, but then ultimately uh, lost his life yesterday. Yes, that's that story. That's the story that's gone round. Like, he, he, I think he went out to see a friend, over to a friend that was going home the next day or something. I think that's what happened. Uh, um, some friend of his that, and like like all his age group uh, I would have a nephew who would be very close to his brother and older brother and uh, town and the clubs are devastated by it do you know what I mean mm. 
I believe his friends are uh, releasing balloons in uh, the park uh, tomorrow evening and there'll be a minute yeah. silence uh, at the football club uh, on yeah. Friday evening as well. Uh, God, yeah. And, uh, um, look, what else we can do, we give them all the help they can and, and well, that's it. not mm. to get the body, but, you know, I think it takes a while to get a body back from those countries. So it doesn't, just doesn't happen overnight. And whatever needs to be done as regards us here in the town of Navan and mm. And so that we will give them every assistance. Well, that's it. Uh, it complicates uh, the issue and the normal grieving process and yes. uh, yeah. compounds uh, the uh, tragedy uh, that has uh, beset the family. Our sympathies, as you say, to all of uh, the ladies and uh, yes. uh, all his uh, friends as well. I mean, so yeah. many young people, uh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, like he's well, a good, you know. lively young lad, you know, mm-hmm. well liked and well known around the town, you know. Yeah. Okay, Tommy, listen, thanks indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Local councillor Tommy Riley there. Now, Wednesday morning, the local newspapers are in your shops. As usual, Marie Kearns is here with what's on the front pages of the local papers. Good morning to you, Marie. Uh, You're starting in uh, Dundalk uh, this week and you have the Dundalk Democrat uh, in front of you with a story of uh, concerns about security locally. That's right, Michael. It's fears after spate of burglaries. That's the headline of the Dundalk Democrat. And the paper's reporting that concerns for the security of elderly and vulnerable people living on their own in rural areas of Louth have increased following a surge in home burglaries in the region in the past week. Apparently, six burglaries took place between July 30th and August 3rd, with three homes and three businesses targeted. So people are obviously very worried about this, Michael. OK, well, that's the front page of uh, the Democrat. A very different story on the front page of uh, the Drogheda Independent, uh, which is in festival mode. That's right. It's all about the flaw on the front page of the Drogheda Independent ahead of the official opening of this year's event by President Michael D. Higgins and his wife on Sunday with a 36 special page supplement inside so you'll get everything you need to know about the various events. It'll be over by the time you read it. Lots to take in there. But if, meanwhile, if you've ever visited, Michael, I don't know if you have. I I, I have over the years, Mellifant Abbey Gardens. You'll be disappointed to read the story on page two of the Drogheda Independent because the garden centre run by the Cistercian monks, uh, which has been operating, I believe, for more than six decades, is closing. And the decision was taken basically due to a change of circumstances within the community there. Mm. But a bit of a disappointment, I'd say, locally about that. Okay, from Drogheda back uh, to Dundalk and back to Drogheda in some ways, (laughs) because the Argus in Dundalk is leading with the local connection in Dundalk with the Fla in Drogheda. That's right. They're reporting about the cream of musical talent from Dundalk, as the paper describes it, who'll be performing during the week-long festival. And they single out for mention brothers and all-Ireland instrumentalists Saren Mulligan and Ty Mulligan from Ard Esmond, who will perform with Damien Dempsey at Saturday's opening show in the Dome, while Zoe Conway will star with the RTE concert, concert orchestra as part of Sunday night's main show in the same venue. Okay, and uh, we'll finish in County Meath, uh, the Meath Chronicle talking about policing. That's right, they're touching on that story, Michael, uh, in relation to the the proposed merger 
uh, of the Meath Garda division with another division uh, which has been described as baffling by Deputy Shane Cassis who said the move will undermine the force in Meath while Aintus Padda Tobin describes the proposals as fiercely frustrating and window dressing adding that Meath is at crisis point with regard to crime and antisocial behaviour. So this was that draft divisional policing mode proposal merging the Mead Garda station with the West Mead and with just one chief superintendent for the two counties so I'm sure there's lots to play out in relation to that Michael if it okay. does ever happen Alright well there are the stories that are, are making uh, the front pages of uh, the local papers uh, this week some interesting stories there which people might want to comment on because you'll be back in a few minutes uh, with some of uh, the comments that do come to us uh, this morning so uh, if uh, you would like uh, to ring Marie or Maggie they're taking calls now and and uh, you're welcome to comment on those stories, something else you've been hearing, or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us, as always, our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the American President uh, Donald Trump is uh, to visit uh, Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas uh, today, where the communities are mourning the loss of 31 lives due to two separate mass shootings that took place over the weekend. He's to get a, a frosty reception, it would seem, at least from some El Paso congresswoman. Veronica Escobar has said to Mr Trump, you are not welcome here. She was speaking on MSNBC where the presenter read a tweet to her from Mr Trump which read, the media has a big responsibility to life and safety in our country. Fake news has contributed greatly to the anger and rage that has built up over many years. News coverage has got to start being fair, balanced and unbiased or these terrible problems will only get worse. And uh, Congresswoman Escobar was asked to react to that tweet. It is shocking to me that he is so utterly self-aware. And this is why, from my perspective, he is not welcome here. He should not come here while we are in mourning. This is one of the sites of one of his rallies. I heard Mika um, uh, earlier mention that violence increased. Statistically, violence went up, uh, hate crimes went up in communities where he had held rallies. He came into one of the safest communities in the nation. And as a result, or maybe not as a result, that is probably unfair. But months later, A gunman came into our community. Someone from outside of this community came into this beautiful, tranquil, loving place to do us harm. Congresswoman Escobar speaking to MSNBC. Now, the El Paso County Commissioner, David Stout, has been speaking with ABC. I think that uh, this community is... You know, still still in a lot of pain. You know, there's a gaping wound that is still open here. And a lot of us feel like his presence in this community tomorrow is just going to be throwing salt in that wound. You know, regardless of what happened here on Saturday, he has constantly demonized, vilified the type of people that live in this community. You know, he's started his campaign by calling Mexicans rapists and murderers. He questions the credibility of a federal judge just because of the fact that he's Mexican. Um, You know, he has tweeted hundreds or thousands of times talking about this supposed invasion on behalf of the Hispanic people. You know, and and just a couple of days ago, we heard him at a rally when he was, uh, he asked folks, what do we do 
with these immigrants and somebody yelled out, shoot them, and he laughed at that. You know, regardless of what happened here on Saturday, I don't understand why in the world uh, anybody would think it would be a good idea for him to be in El Paso, Texas. El Paso County Commissioner David Stout speaking with ABC. It is unbelievable to think uh, that the American president would be laughing at the idea of shooting them, isn't it? When you have 15,000 people marching up and you have two or three border security people that are brave and great, and don't forget, we don't let them and we can't let them use weapons. We can't. Other countries do. We can't. I would never do that. But how do you stop these people? You can't. There's no... That's only in the panhandle you can get away with that state. President Trump, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with NUI Galway and political columnist with uh, the journal.ie is on uh, the line. Uh, a very good morning to you, Larry, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Terrible tragedy, uh, terrible terrorism, domestic terrorism, as they're calling it in the United States over the weekend. Uh, do you think uh, that the president will be welcomed in either of uh, the two places where this happened? Uh, it doesn't seem like he will be welcomed in either place. And I think uh, in particular in El Paso, with good reason, the reality is the president has said uh, a lot of horrendous things about uh, immigrants. Uh, and I think that uh, you cannot hold the president, of course, for reliable for the actions of this per- liable for the actions of this person, but he certainly con- has contributed to a climate uh, in the United States that I think uh, is more conducive to this, is more conducive to uh, white supremacism. Uh, white supremacists themselves have expressed a comfort uh, and a, a, that they have somebody in the White House uh, who is in their corner. So I think that the president uh, really needs to re-examine some of the things he says, because even if he says, he, you know, for instance, that quip, uh, as it were, uh, in the crowd at a rally, uh, even if he says he didn't mean it a certain way, well, people are going to take these things a certain way, uh, and people who may have mental health, health issues or whatever are, are driven by absolute hatred. Um, some of them are going to act on it. And I think we saw, we saw that uh, very clearly in El Paso. Uh, it needs to be said also, of course, that the issue of mass shootings is bigger than President Trump. These have gone on for many years. Uh, it's really down to the insane uh, gun laws in the United mm. States that allow people uh, to get weapons that only... I uh, should be used in wartime, if at all. And the insane gun laws uh, that uh, allow insane people to kill other people because they can go out and legally buy guns and use them uh, has, in the past, at least been uh, localised. Uh, you know, people uh, have carried out terrible atrocities in schools or in their own locality or whatever the case may be. But this one in El Paso, he drove 10 hours from Dallas to specifically target the Hispanic population. Yeah, it's 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 a national issue, and uh, you know, lots of things have facilitated the the movement of guns across borders. We've talked a lot about El Paso, but for instance, the Dayton shooting in which nine people were killed, uh, that was done by virtue of a, a gun that was purchased online uh, from Texas. So we see these guns crossing state lines and crossing mm. state borders, and we see that being done with very very little being done uh, by way of background checks or. Or, or, or waiting periods or any of the reasonable restrictions uh, on gun ownership that most people believe in. Uh, and that's really because the NRA, the National Rifle Association, has adopted an absolutist position on the issue of gun control. That is, no gun control uh, whatsoever is acceptable. And, and politicians, sadly, 
uh, have marched in lockstep to their tune, largely because they're politically powerful, they have an awful lot of money. Uh, and to be frank, as I've said before, um, politicians who've allowed this situation to develop, uh, to put it absolutely bluntly, they have blood on their hands. They have the blood uh, of the innocent people in Dayton and El Paso, the innocent people at that Gallic Festival in California last mm. week, and at mass shootings in Las Vegas and Connecticut and elsewhere around the country. Their blood is on those politicians' hands. And it's commonplace now. It is. I mean, yeah. the, 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 way I, the way I would put it, Michael, is that mm. legitimately, it is, it's not paranoia. It's legitimate fear, entirely legitimate fear, to be walking around the United States looking around to see who might be out there because these mass shootings have become so commonplace that it's justifiable to be afraid. Uh, and one of the things I do wonder is, especially as the rest of the world looks on uh, in horror what happens to the United States, uh, I wonder if the United States is going to become uh, a less attractive place to go and visit uh, because people are legitimately afraid uh, of a gun culture. And one of the things that's been, been out there on the, in Twitter in the recent days since this all happened mm. is a man waiting for a coffee in Starbucks with a grotesque uh, AKA assault rifle slung over his shoulder waiting in line uh, at a coffee shop. I mean, if that isn't terrifying, I don't know what is. Yeah, we listened uh, to a lot of what Donald Trump had to say on the program yesterday and he offered uh, four solutions in relation to this and talked about a lot of the causes. And a lot of what he said, if taken in isolation, was very sensible, very reasonable and uh, indeed uh, expressed a lot of empathy and sympathy, I think, uh, with the victims and uh, their families. Uh, But that's if, as I say, you take it in isolation. Uh, If you take it in the context of everything else that's happening, it's very hard to give much credibility to what he's saying uh, because he has this role uh, as a a politician, as the President of the United States that oversees a society where you have the right to bear arms uh, and undoubtedly he's not the only one who believes in uh, that uh, part of uh, the Constitution. Uh, But he also has been accused of uh, speech hate uh, and or hate speech Uh, and no matter how many times Donald Trump says he's not a racist or absolutely not a, a racist uh, there's no doubt that he's played into the thinking of people in the United States. Oh, I, I think that's, that's absolutely true. And I mean, you know, look, I don't expect the gun laws to change uh, dramatically as a result of these, because sadly, politicians are too uh, in tow to the National Rifle Association. But what I continue to hope, I don't have much, I don't have much optimism on this front, but what I continue to hope is that the president might finally see sense uh, in terms of the language he uses, particularly on Twitter, uh, it's inflammatory. Uh, it's unpresidential. A lot of it is hateful. Whether he means it as hate or not is an open question. I don't know what's in his mind, uh, but certainly it is taken by haters as mm. an endorsement of the philosophy and the beliefs that they espouse and that they have. And that tragically and sadly, uh, they are willing increasingly uh, to act upon. Uh, and it sends a very, very dangerous message out about the United States. I mean, it really flies in the face uh, of all the American values that we like to think uh, underpin uh, the republic that, that, that we all learned about when we were in school as Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very, very sad state of affairs. The question, I suppose, in an overarching sense is what political impact all of this is going to have 
Uh, that remains to be seen as we watch the 2020 Democratic presidential primary unfold. And well, you might hope that be the case, Larry Donnelly. I take it uh, there's little hope of it being the case uh, because it's one of his main platforms, or was one of his main platforms, and one of the main reasons he he got elected. I mean, it all comes back uh, to this idea of a, a wall and keeping them out for all of the reasons that he has outlined, uh, which uh, I think uh, has probably led to this uh, attitude and uh, thinking and. Uh, it becoming popular thinking for that matter. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly some of the, the division that I suppose was always there. I mean, racism has always been a problem for American uh, society. There's no question about it. It's division, and, and especially uh, as so many of these people across middle America that we've heard so much about have been left behind by the twin forces of glo- globalization and technology. Uh, and, you know, in many ways are looking for someone to blame or looking for someone to scapegoat because of uh, the, the very difficult situation mm. they find themselves in. Donald Trump has exploited that, uh, I think, dreadfully and dreadfully effectively. Uh, at the same time, no one can doubt the efficacy of what he's done uh, through Twitter and rallies and other things that he said. But what I, again, you know, can only reiterate the hope is that um, certainly on one hand uh, that he might see the error of his ways, and then on the other hand, uh, that people of America who uh, who are hurting, and I, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm the first person to say not everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a bad person. Not everyone who voted for Donald Trump is a racist. They did so for a whole range of different reasons, uh, and we need to recognize that a lot of them are hurting in a desperate situation. What I do hope is that some of them will see that he is not the answer, and that his politics and the things he says uh, are not the answer to their problems, and, and giving him. Uh, four more years in the White House, uh, we can only expect to see the fissures and divisions uh, in American society worse, and I think that would be tragic. And uh, I think that's probably been the message from Barack Obama, has it not? It has. You know, I, I think and I sent this out on Twitter that Barack Obama had, you know, spoke so eloquently uh, and passionately in his statement about politics and about uh, what lead- what real leadership is like. Uh, and, again, and again, Barack Obama's presidency wasn't perfect, but what I will say is, you know, his statement, where I, which I thought was so marvelous and captured what Americans really need to focus in on in these days, uh, what really makes it extraordinary for me is to watch uh, some of the people running for the Democratic presidential nomination uh, tear apart uh, his presidency and say uh, that they would do things so differently and that they would be so much better as president of the United States uh, than he was and to only point to his failings. Uh, to use an Irish analogy, uh, most of these people have never played senior hurling. They don't know what it's like to be president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's that kind of leadership uh, that I think we're waiting to see and waiting to hear uh, from the Democratic presidential uh, candidates. It's one thing to take political shots, and some of them have done that, and we're going to expect that. It's another thing altogether, however, to put together a coherent, strong, alternative vision uh, to the America that Donald Trump uh, seems to want. Larry Donnelly, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. It's always appreciated. Larry is a law lecturer with NUI Galway and a political column- columnist with the journal.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Alison from Dundalk phoned in and she feels that in relation to cervical screening and your interview at the top of the show, there doesn't seem to be any real sense of urgency 
on the government's part to restore confidence in cervical check, which is an awful pity. People need to get screened to um, know if they have signs of cancer and no stone should be left unturned to deliver a reliable service, says Alison. Okay, well it's another controversy which comes on foot of the previous one on foot of the one before that, yeah. Sinead from Drogheda wonders if it were men who had been affected by this, would it be treated with a greater sense of urgency? It just seems to be one bad situation after another, says Sinead. Mm, Well, it it does, doesn't it? And whether that's coincidence or because it is women, I suppose it's a, a legitimate question to ask. On the shootings in America, uh, Neve was in touch and says, after every shooting, Michael, there are calls for gun laws in America to change, but it never happens. Probably never will. It's terrible that people can't feel safe in their own country. You don't know when someone is going to strike next. Poor innocent people being executed for no reason. Mm. It would make you nervous going to America, says mm. Neve. Yeah, well, I tell you, there's reason for uh, being nervous uh, with uh, what we saw over the weekend. Really uh, atrocious stuff, if ever there was. Claire says it's just shocking what happened over in America and thinks that Trump needs to wake up and realise that it's only getting worse. Guns aren't toys. They are taking people's lives and it's terrifying. How much Mm. further can it go? Claire wonders. Yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you'll ever convince Donald Trump uh, of uh, the merits of uh, that argument. He seems to be a big supporter of uh, the gun lobby and uh, the use of guns and he quite often thinks that the best deterrent for people using guns is uh, to have them face into other people who have guns and have a, a showdown if that's what's needed. Jack says, Michael, you're on Trump again. Did Trump shoot the people in Manchester, Paris or Norway? No, he didn't. No, I don't think he did. No, I don't think he shot them in America either. But uh, I do think uh, that uh, he has uh, made uh, an awful lot of comments and stirred up an awful lot of hatred and uh, brought an awful lot of uh, division, not just in America, but to the world. A couple of comments still outstanding, Michael, in relation to the broadcasting charge. Tom thinks that this new charge is the government's way of doing away with the free TV licence for pensioners. It's their way of saving themselves money. Okay. Jack says, Michael, no way am I going to pay a new broadcasting fee. I already pay my licence fee and you'll find I'm faced being punished for paying that because it's going to be increased again. Well, we'll see. Yeah, it's uh, certainly something that is of interest to a lot of people. Nobody seems to know how it's going to work in reality, but it is of uh, concern to some as well. Kira McEntee is uh, the North East spokesperson for the Irish Postmasters Union and on the line. And a very good morning to you, Kieran, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us on. You're one of the people who are are concerned about uh, changing uh, the TV licence into this media charge, which could see people uh, paying a a licence fee, if you like, for having a mobile phone or whatever the case may be. But it's uh, the idea that this would be tendered out uh, to somebody other than on post, possibly, uh, is what is concerning you. Yes, it is, because it's worth three million to the postmasters. And if that's lost, about 200 post offices will close. We've done a deal there two years ago with ourselves and on post to give, to sort out the post office network. And we all worked together and we were promised new business by the government. Mm. And nothing has come. And now this has come down the line. Another thing being taken away from us. We, like everybody keeps saying, keep rural Ireland alive. Let oh, every politician, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Sinn Féin, mm. independent, look at by stop talk. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. About doing something to keep Ireland alive. If this goes away from the post office, it's, it's worth three million. So about two hundred post offices will be under threat. And I, I am not making this as a, a sad story. We did do a deal there for post offices and to keep them open for another five years. But if the government doesn't come in, there's a cross departmental group brought together there, and they're supposed to bring a memo to government. Uh, for new business, mm. new business to the post office. But if we lose this, it's gone. It's like the passports. They're advertising the passports every day and they go online. So there'll be nothing for the local post office to do. Well, that's it. I think everybody used to go to the post office to get their passport unless it was last minute and then they'd go up to the passport office. But now you can do it online and it seems as though this may be a service uh, that is uh, given over to somebody else to provide. Why might that be the case, do you think? But people think that we collect the, the television license. We don't. We issue the television mm. license in the post office. Like I have a post office here in Seaman House of Manor. I don't go out checking people to see if they have a television license. They come into the post office with a letter to mm. say their li- license is due on the 31st of August or the 31st the, of the, July. The, and, and I issue the license through the, the post office mm. system. Uh, and if you have a television, you're meant to have a, a television license. Uh, and so there are inspectors that go around to make sure that you have your license. Uh, if you have a, a television, uh, are they employed by Ampost? Yes, Ampost do send people out. But they, they, that's the company, but not the small post mm. office, not the independent postmasters like us. We have nothing to do with it. And Post itself does do some of that ground and check it, but it mm. comes to the company offices, not the small post office out in rural Ireland. Like, uh, you know, the, the, it's the main company office does that, sends somebody out. Okay, uh, but there's a lot of people who should have a television licence that hasn't bought one uh, and uh, that's resulted in a loss of 40 million euro a year on uh, the licence scheme it seems. And, and that's right, I agree with that but mm. enforcing that is very hard as you know um, 
the diesel licenses, the water charges, the different stuff and things, property tax, all this. It's very, very far, hard to watch. I mean, uh, some people will pay it, the genuine person will yeah. pay it, but some other people will not pay it at all. That's, that's life. That's the life we have, and we do our best to get, get in as much as we can. But if they come to the post office, people will deliver the, the television license to them. So it's up to the government to bring in a way of uh, even, even have them do that they. Mm. come to the post office and pay the new licence fee. We don't mind once it's gone through the post office. Mm. I take it, though, that regardless of who is responsible for the licence scheme, which is on POSTA at the moment, and people can go to their local post office now and buy a TV licence or pay for it there, uh, that in time, regardless of who uh, oversees the service, uh, that uh, there won't be a need to go to the post office. Well, that's if it goes, if, it's, if they go to a utility bill or something, that should be on direct debits mm. or that there. So the post office is going to be taken out of the equation again. And I keep, and, and appreciate your station because you do give us plenty of airtime. People keep saying, the politicians keep saying they want the post offices in, in towns mm. and villages. But they seem to be want to be taking all the, the business away from the post office. And people say they want their post offices in towns and villages, but it's up to the people to support the post office, I, I, I take it. If uh, they decide to do this stuff online, they can't have it both ways. Well, that's right. Like, I mean, I, I had Paddy O'Gorman in Monaghan one day and, and he interviewed a young lady on how, how she spent her, uh, her social welfare money. And he was, he was shocked. He, he thought I set the lady up. But she, she had everything broke down for euro for the televisions. And just on that too, in the post office, you can buy your television license by a four euro stamp every week. So mm. there's no excuse that it's 160 euros that you have to pay out. You can pay four euros every week and get a stamp and it's put into a book. And when your television license is due, you come to the post office and you hand in the book. And if you have 60 euro or 100 euro, you only have to add the other 60 euro to it. So there is, a, uh, it's not that the people's been getting it hard to get the television license. If they wanted to get a television license, they could use the four euro stamp every week. Okay, and God knows in uh, the modern world, uh it's a dying business. I think everybody accepts that, yourselves included, and that's why you've asked uh, to be provided with new services and a new way of doing business. Uh, but uh, as you say, little has been delivered in terms of nothing. these services that you were hoping to get. Nothing, nothing has been delivered. And, 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 I, and I don't like talking politics because I don't believe in that. Mm. believe all the politicians... They're all around. When they come around to me here looking for the local county council elections, I said to them, but he says, no good in you knocking somebody else. You're all in there. Get together. If you want rural Ireland alive, you want to keep business in rural Ireland, and, 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 and I used this statement before with you, take the post office out of a village, and we can, you can look around Louth, Meath, Cav, and Mana, and take the post office out, and you take the shop and the butchers out with them in another two or three years because the money is not being spent in that area if the people don't come to that area. They're off to somewhere else so the other businesses lose out. And that, that is facts. We've done it with Bobby Kerr. We've done it with, with uh, Torlick O'Donnell and all them different ones looking at this uh, option around the country. If a shop, post office goes out of a village, the rest of the business goes with it. OK, Kieran, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks, as always, uh, for joining us here on the programme. Kieran McEntee, North East spokesperson with the Irish Postmaster Union. Now let's go back uh, to the phones and some more of uh, the calls and comments you have there, Marie. Yes, Michael, just sticking with the broadcasting licence. What a joke that people will have to pay a broadcasting licence on their laptop and on their mobile phones, says Mary and Trim. It's not right what is going on. Mary says she can understand people not wanting to pay the new broadcasting fee, given that nearly every show 
being shown is a repeat or a rip-off of a show from another country. She has her licence but is tired of seeing the same programmes over and over again. Maybe if they brought bought some new shows or created new content that people would be less adverse to a new fee. Okay, interesting stuff. Thank you to everybody who has taken the time to call us today or text us or email us or however you got in touch. If you did get in touch, if you didn't get in touch and you'd like to add to what's been said, our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Well, I'm seeing reports of uh, two men uh, who've uh, been struck by uh, a tractor and trailer with uh, cattle at a beef plant protest in Kilbegan in Westmeath. Uh, this is according to Agriland, uh, which uh, says this happened yesterday. It follows on, of course, uh, from uh, the man who was uh, struck by a uh, H. Uh, by a big uh, SUV in Slane uh, last Friday and another incident, similar incident in Cork uh, a number of days uh, before that. Uh, there's been a, a lot of uh, concern about the way the protests are being held and uh, indeed uh, the beef plan movement has uh, disassociated itself, it would seem, with uh, the protest that was taking place at the factory in Kilkenny following what has been described as a legal blockade. So Joe Healy is uh, the president of the IFA, the Irish Farmers Association, and he's on the line this morning. Joe Healy, I take it a lot of the people who are involved in these protests are members of the IFA. Uh, well, look, we're not, it's not an IFA protest. Uh, we haven't organised uh, any of those protests. So, you know, there are individuals there in their own capacity. Um, it's a, a beef plan protest and it's um, not an IFA one because, uh, look, and anyone is entitled to do whatever they whatever they wish in relation to trying to create their income and I fully understand and like we're at our wit's end uh, with the frustration and the anger and mm. the disillusionment out there amongst farmers but at our most recent recent National Council meeting which is the governing body of the organisation and we spent a number of hours discussing the current crisis uh, and the view was that unfortunately at the moment with the European market, UK market, the Irish market with consumption down and prices in, in countries that we're exporting into under such pressure, that um, the view was that there isn't a return from the marketplace at the moment, so we would continue to pursue the line that we had success in, and that was to pursue to put our efforts into uh, lobbying the government and the EU Commission, and that led to 100 million of a delivery for us for Irish farmers in um, the last two months. And what were the key demands that we have now when we went to the, not too far from me there, the, the EU FVO offices in uh, Grange last week. And our demands are very clearly a ban, a calling on the EU Commission and the government to ban all substandard beef imports into the EU, to create a further fund to support farmers who slaughtered cattle after the cut-off date of May the 12th in the last fund, to pro- provide a €1 billion Euro Brexit fund of market support and direct aid for beef farmers and to have a EU campaign to promote our environmentally sustainable EU beef production because we have seen that for one reason or another consumption has dropped by a significant amount uh, in the UK and across Europe over throughout this year. 
All right. Well, all farmers and uh, I think all of uh, the farming representative bodies such as the IFA uh, would be singing from the same hymn sheet. But it it seems uh, that these protests have resulted in farmers at each other's throats. Uh, Farmers are are pitted against farmers. Uh, How do you describe uh, the blockades? Are, Are they illegal blockades to stop livestock from going into the factories? It's it's not. Uh, look, our statement yesterday, um, we would have highlighted the fact that any of our members were free to support the protests if they so wished, if they wanted to, uh, not to send their cattle or mm. their sheep to be slaughtered, or if they wanted to join the protest. But we made it also very clear in our statement that farmers um, do need to be able to sell their stock for a number of reasons. Number one is they, they might need the money. And number two, we don't want them to lose inspect bonuses because we farmers can't afford to lose inspect bonuses. Uh, but if they so wish to hold back the cattle, then that's their own choice. Mm, but but there, if, they want, if they want to sell them, the farmers should feel comfortable and feel free to sell their cattle. Also, um, vets and other workers, um, mm. you know, but we can see that this has got very bitter. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about it uh, that there's a, a level of resentment and anger uh, on both sides of this dispute. People want to get their livestock in and get their business done, and others want to prevent them from doing that, might regard them as being scabs. Yeah, and un- unfortunately, unfortunately, um, you know, I can't deny what you're saying is right, and I've got many, many phone calls now. For every phone call I get to say that we should be uh, supporting it as an organisation, um, I'm getting prob- probably a lot more to say that where our stance is right, that farmers feel that the answers to the big problems that are there um, doesn't lie specifically here in Ireland, they lie more in Brussels and with our government mm. and that's why we're following the four issues that I highlighted to you. Mm. And four injuries, though, as a result of uh, the protests at uh, the factories. It's time uh, for some level thinking. Uh, the minister has uh, called on uh, those on both sides of uh, this dispute to meet, uh, but that's not the farmers. That's the farmers and the factories, obviously. Yeah, it would be the farmers and meat industry Ireland. And look, from reading the the or coverage on it, the same mm. as yourself, Um Meat Industry Ireland have have agreed to meet, uh, but provided the protests are called off. But in the same uh, way, the uh, the organisation that have organised those protests have said that they won't call off the protests to have a meeting. In the meantime, look, I'm president of the IFA. Uh, they're not our protests. Mm. We haven't organised them. We had a protest in Grange last week with the Food and Veterinary Office uh, highlighting the the needs for them to do more to ban the substandard beef imports into the EU, Mm. given that we're in oversupply. And we continue to work. And I think it's worth highlighting that in the last year and a half alone, because some farmers might ask, you know, what have IFA done? And for a farmer with 30 suckler cows, finishing those 30 cattle to slaughter and uh, carrying 100 yews, IFA delivery in the last year alone for those farmers with the beef programme that would be worth 1200 to that farmer. The most recent one, um, the, the beam, the 100 million, that would be worth 3000 to 200 to that farmer. The sheep would be worth 1000 ANC, we got increases there in the last two years of the ANC by uh, 50 million. That would be worth 400 to the farmer. And then most farmers are paying tax now because there's enough farm income 
and uh, there's 1,350 got there. So that's over 8,000 euros or 70 cent a kilo on the turkey cattle that they slaughtered. That's what IFA has mm. delivered. So, you know, this isn't about patting ourselves on the back. There's a huge amount of work to be done there. But I think it's no harm to highlight what has been delivered. That's the equivalent of 70 cent per kilo. No one else has got anything remotely like that or has got anything for for farmers. And we continue to do that work. And And, and you're holding your own protest at the same time. On the other hand, you're I mean, you're 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 not suggesting uh, for a a minute uh, that the prices are fair and that something has to be done. What about uh, the minister? Uh, Should Michael Creed be intervening rather than calling on both sides in this dispute to meet to try and find a, a solution? Well, we've often called on the minister to intervene and that he can't wash his hands of it and he has given the, you know, on price and what factories are paying. Um, But now when we'd be calling on him to do that, it would be when there would be, like at the moment, there's about a 15 cent per kilo difference between what the Irish farmer is being paid and what the English farmer is being paid. When we'd be calling on the minister to do that, it's generally when the price gap is much more significant than that and there's an obvious, um, you know, gap there that the that the factories could pay out more because in the past we've seen 50 cent up and more of a difference between the Irish price and the UK price and that's about 200 euros an animal um, and that's too much you know the the when that's the case where we're putting in 52 percent of our beef mm. well then the factories can pay more at the moment unfortunately the difference between the Irish price and the UK price is only about 15 cent a kilo which you know doesn't give a huge amount of wriggle room given the fact that we're not on the top shelf in the UK. Uh, that, you know, they're red tractor and they'll try and, uh, I suppose, use their own beef first and give ours the second shelf. Um, so we'd be calling on the minister at those times to get involved or when we'd be behind the EU average. Um, so, but like he has always said, and it's the same answer, that he can't get in pri- uh, involved with factories uh, on fixing price and that's the answer he's given at the moment um, I do think uh, that he needs and the Taoiseach needs to be pushing the EU Commission a lot stronger on banning like Michael if we mm. produced beef in this country or any other product in the same way as they do in Brazil and some of the countries uh, in South America it would be illegal for us to put that food on the shelves here so what we're looking for is a level playing field um, you know, so that if we're com- if we have to compete on the shelf space with Brazil, well, then that they have to su- they have to produce to the same standard as we are. And if you take all the work, and you've often covered it there on your show mm. in relation to the environment and what we're asked to do for the environment, and we don't mind doing that. We we're custodians of the environment, and we want to improve every day. Um, but at the same time, we see the EU doing a deal with Mercosur countries that includes the likes of Brazil, that are destroying the equivalent of a football pitch every minute of the Amazon rainforest. So, you know, a level playing pitch, and that's why we've called on the EU to ban all the substandard beef imports into the EU because there's a huge amount, and there's over 400,000 tonnes of beef being imported into the EU, a market that's already 
over 100% uh, self-sufficient. What about the competition laws uh, and uh, the idea of farmers coming together and uh, forming cooperatives? Uh, If you were to cut out the middleman, if you were to uh, have your own factories or or, um, to sell your own final product, uh, because the retailer is making an awful lot of money out of this as well, uh, would that change things and bring prices down elsewhere? Yeah, well, look, and farmers had... uh, there had beef factories, farmers had control of beef factories in the past. I'm not flying a flag, flag for beef factories here. Uh, but, you know, we've heard a lot of talk in the last year from people say that they have markets and they can get five euros a kilo. Mm. There's no sign of them. Um, and that talk has gone on for the last year, but there's no sign of those markets materialising. And there's no sign, if anything, uh, in that year, the price has actually dropped. So it's not simple. The EU markets are not simple at the moment. It's like we're in the highest price market in the world, uh, in the EU, and still those markets are under incredible pressure. And you're talking about, um, you know, a drop in consumption and a drop in price, price right across Europe. And that's why we want to ban and try and reduce the amount of meat coming into Europe. We want a campaign from the from the Commission and to have it funded and promoted to promote beef and promote the environmentally friendly way and sustainable way that it's produced in Ireland and across Europe compared with the other countries. And we also want to fund there to support farmers, you know, in the lead up to Brexit, because even since IFA secured that 100 million, the price has dropped by probably another 25 cents. So farmers selling cents are actually losing more money than the farmers that sold before the 12th of of, uh, May. Okay. We'll leave there for the moment, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Okay, Joe, thank, you. thank you very much. Joe Healy is uh, the president of the IFA, the Irish Farmers Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the recommendations uh, from uh, the Labour Court in uh, relation uh, to two disputes, uh, one uh, involving support staff who are members of SIPTU and other catering staff, chefs who are also members of SIPTU. We're joined uh, by Paul Bell, who's SIPTU's health division organiser. A very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, You've had two disputes, uh, which has seen some strike action and another strike action deferred, went into the Labour Court and the Labour Court has made its recommendations. What are, are they suggesting to your members? Well, the Labour Court might have had an unprecedented uh, review of the issues in dispute and by that I mean they spent approximately 10 days both informally and formally investigating the causes of both disputes. Uh, the Labour Court recommendation regarding to a chef members has been very, very clear to us and something that we believe we can work with uh, with now a process for 12 weeks, which will be uh, conducted under the auspices of the Workplace Relations Commission, building on the work we've already been involved in through the independent review that has been agreed between the Department of Health and SIP2 and, uh, and the HSE. Uh, and obviously, if there are any issues that cannot be addressed, the Labour Court will then uh, make recommendations to address any, uh, any of those issues. But we're very confident that we now have a good route and good uh, pathway to achieving paid justice for those members. Okay, the recommendation from the Labour Court is uh, that the support staff get pay increases of between 6 and 13% from the 1st of September. Is that in line with your original claim? Absolutely. Uh, the, yeah. that's, just a, that's just a headline figure, Michael. Yeah. We're going to concentrate on the, on the job evaluation process. Uh, the figure that was owed, uh, the figure, never mind the percentage, 
uh, range between 16.2 and 19.2 million euros. Uh, the Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court have verified that the actual figure was between 15.2 and 15.5. So the Labour Court's view is that the government was welching on the deal it struck with you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Labour Court yeah. has made it quite clear that air members are entitled to payment in 2019 for phase one and phase two of job evaluation. The government, Michael, as you recall, decided that they would change the goalposts and that what would happen is that when all four phases of job evaluation was completed, they would then uh, feature that conversation uh, for a successful public service agreement, which will be in 2021 at the earliest. That was unacceptable to our members because this particular process was agreed on the Lansdowne Road Agreement in 2015. Okay. So as far as we were concerned, we, we had to take that issue on. Our members were resident to, to uh, ensure they were going to receive some degree of recognition and pay justice, and the Labour Court has actually vindicated their claims in that regard. Okay, there's many different cogs in the government wheel. If we can come back to that in a moment, though, and the different cogs or the different arms of government. But generally speaking, what happened was that the government said, we will give you a pay increase. And that sort of called the dogs off, if you like, and then came back and said, well, we said we'd give you a pay increase, but didn't say when we'd give it to you. Well, that was the, that was the approach that the Department of Public Expenditure Reform, Michael, did take. Uh, unfortunately, when the, the documentation was reviewed, it was very clear that after phase one and two of job evaluation, which dealt with big groups like healthcare assistants, laboratory aides, mm. uh, CSSD technicians, it was quite clear for everybody to see who wished to see it. That phase, after that phase one and two, which was completed in October 2018, then we had to discuss implementation. Okay. Uh, the, unfortunate, the unfortunate part of this, Michael, is that we had to uh, embark on a campaign of industrial action and strike action mm. to achieve what we believed was absolutely concrete. Which within the discommoded public. so many people and so many yeah. sick people for that matter and it's the public uh, who to a large degree suffered but from what you're saying that's because of how the government has behaved and we go back to the cogs in the wheel. One of the, the cogs is the HSE, another of the cogs is the Department of Health and they agreed that this pay increase was due to your members. Another cog, the Department of Public Expenditure was charged with implementing those increases and then said, well, look, we said we'd give you an increase, but we didn't say when we're going to give it to you and we'll delay that indefinitely. Well, well to the Department of Public Expenditure reform, the issue that we've always had with that, that part of government is that they signed off on the agreement in 2015. And that's what really troubled us greatly. And our members were determined that if the agreement was signed off and we voted on that agreement in 2015 as part of Lansdowne Road 1, well then the, any payments that would arise through job evaluation, which is an intricate part of the public service agreement, had to be honoured. Uh, we had very, very serious frustrations all along, even trying to get this scheme up and running. Uh, and that has been very, very much testing for our members. And, you know, it was regrettable that we ended up into a strike situation, but there was actually no other way both mm. for our chef members and indeed for our uh, okay. support staff members to move the issue forward. OK, uh, as I understand it, as I'm hearing you explain it to me, uh, and correct me if I, I'm wrong, does this mean that the view of the Labour Court is that the government breached the Lansdowne Road Agreement? Uh, I don't think the Labour Court has made that commentary so explicit, but what I think they are saying very clearly is that the government's view that payments are not due until 2021 is incorrect. 
because payments are now due from September 1, 2019. Mm. And the other point, Michael, I need to be made is that phases three and four, phases three of the job evaluation scheme concentrate on home care support mm. workers. The Labour Court have made it quite clear that process must be completed by September next year. And phase four, which are grades like catering assistance, porters, uh, people working in households, that cannot be completed any later than January 1, 2021. So basically what's being said here is when the evaluations are done, those who are successful must be paid in line with the Labour Court recommendation. To me, that's a great relief for our members because they're very clearly having their agreement vindicated by the Labour Court. Mm. And at the end of the day, we do await to see does the Department of Public Expenditure Reform accept the terms that have been put out there but we are now in the business of communicating mm. to our members the, the outcome of the Labour Court recommendation. And this goes back uh, to the crash, doesn't it? Uh, and uh, the emergency legislation that was brought in pla- place at the time and how staff in the health service were asked to do more for uh, less uh, or uh, as such. Uh, and then your members, uh, care assistants, for example, were asked to do nursing duties and uh, to administrate uh, medicines and that sort of thing. Uh, so they were actually doing more work uh, but weren't getting paid more uh, the agreement was that that work would be evaluated and that resulted in these pay increases. They agreed that your members were entitled to pay increases and then we found ourselves in this situation where we had a strike action because the government didn't fulfil its part of the deal. Yeah, well, I think that's a fair good overview of the situation. What has proven, Michael, is that the grades evaluators have proven to be underpaid probably for the period of the recession. And that would be understood because more and more responsibilities were cascading their way to uh, from other groups who were actually short staffed as well to the groups that you're just after mentioning. At some stage, that quantum of movement of the job that people were performing mm. had to be considered and had to be evaluated. And as far as we were concerned, the job evaluation process was the most fair and transparent way of dealing with that. And the chef group are the same. They have mm. no way of processing an issue for them. And this is a grade, by the way, that's actually leaving the health services mm. because of the competition from the private sector, which, you know, which is which because of the way the economy is developing. Uh, and yeah. why is their case not as clear-cut as the support staff? Because uh, they did not have a job evaluation-specific uh, uh, scheme uh, agreed and because there's only two job evaluation schemes that exist as far as um, the Department of Finance is concerned. One is for um, officer grades, uh, which would be clerical officers, but mm. would not be able to assist people in chef grades, and the other is support staff grades. So the issue of pay for chefs will be sorted out in the next three months or so. The support staff should see an increase from uh, the 1st of September, and provided that is uh, the case, uh, that's uh, the end of uh, the threat of industrial action for the moment anyway, is it? I, I, it may be so, Michael, because uh, obviously our members were always said the amount of money they believe they're going to achieve that now, and it's very clear how that's going to be done. Mm. The chef grade, by the way, there's a lot of independent work already done, and that's what the Workplace Relations Commission will be supervising those negotiations. This gives us a pathway to delivering for those professionals, and that's what we're going to take advantage of. Okay. Uh, the allegation initially was that we were making a cost-increasing claim. Uh, what the Labour Court recommendation says is that these people who are providing these services, they need to have some type of process, and that has been achieved, and we are going to work that 
to the end to ensure that we get uh, a pay grading for those people which they deserve. And obviously your members have to agree to that. What about the government? Has it agreed that uh, the Labour Court is correct in how it's recommending you proceed? Well, Michael, the, the government have not made any commentary at this stage about the outcome of the Labour Court recommendation. And I say, like ourselves, mm. they are considering line by line what the Labour Court recommendation means for them, means for public pay policy. And that's exactly what SIPTU is doing now. As we start to divulge information out to our members, we have to make sure that whatever we're saying is absolutely accurate. At the moment, I'm giving you a complete overview mm. of, the, of what the Labour Court recommendation is saying and what it's basically saying our members have been vindicated in their approach to trying to resolve and uphold the public service stability agreement. The other point to make clear, Michael, is that the Labour Court has not said in any of the two Labour Court recommendations that SIP2 was in breach of the uh, public service stability agreement. And we always knew that would come out like that. And we mm. are very happy that the Labour Court has... No, and, 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 and you didn't or wouldn't interpret the recommendation from the Labour Court to mean that the government was in breach, but you told us that, in your view, the government was in breach of uh, the public service pay uh, agreement, the Lansdowne Road uh, agreement. Uh, do you believe that the recommendation from the Labour Court endorses your view? I do believe that it indicates our view. Yes, I do. And in simple terms, uh, and uh, the only regrettable part, of course, is that we had to mount a campaign uh, to basically achieve what we already had agreed. Uh, but I think government themselves did have to review their position over the last number of weeks. Mm. It's incredibly serious. I mean, it's incredible and it's incredibly serious because not only should uh, the employees of the government or their trade union representatives have trust in the government when you enter into these deals. Uh, But there's also uh, the case uh, of uh, the government uh, being in a position that it can fine you and your members if you're in breach of these deals and there's no consequence for government welching on a deal. Well, I think that that discussion did feature somewhere along the industrial campaign if you recall, there was all meetings about uh, that air members would be sanctioned. Uh, that got short shrift from air members and indeed this union. When you were being threatened? Well, we felt that... that Indirectly? The government, the government's position was extremely unhelpful. Mm. Uh, we wanted to focus on addressing air members' rights under the public service agreement. And that is exactly what has happened. Government itself, by the way, will have to consider its future engagement for future public service agreements because their members and members of other unions will have will have a look at how you know these agreements have been progressing and how people got you know treated fairly and so that's a, uh, that's a, something that people will consider before they enter into another agreement in the future and that is if there is another agreement the public service ability agreements have served uh, the public uh, very well have served government policy well and in, in the main have served their members well but we have to be treated fairly equally and treated in a transparent manner and you know at the end of the day it was obvious that the Labour Court was the only way that we were going to be able to resolve this without further uh, recourse to strike action. Okay. Uh, obviously, uh, your members will have to vote on this. We'll uh, wait a response uh, from uh, the government uh, to this recommendation from uh, the Labour Court. But we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed thank for joining much. us this morning. Paul Bell, SIP2 Health Division Organiser. 
Well, we're down to uh, the end game, it would seem, in uh, the negotiations in terms of whether the United Kingdom will leave uh, the European Union with or without a deal, as uh, the case may be. There's a, a lot of grandstanding and some very strong language coming from both sides of uh, the Irish Channel. Let's hear what uh, the Taoiseach Leo Radker had to say in Belfast yesterday. There are many ways by which uh, no deal can be avoided, uh, either the ratification of the withdrawal agreement, uh, a further extension uh, or revocation of Article 50. So there are a number of ways by which uh, no deal can be avoided on the 31st of October. So I'm certainly not fatalistic about that. Uh, you know, our position is that the withdrawal agreement, including the backstop, uh, is closed. Uh, but there is always room for talks and negotiations. When I spoke to uh, Prime Minister Johnson uh, only last week, um, I invited him to come to Dublin to talk about these issues, to talk about Brexit, to talk about Northern Ireland, to talk about bilateral relations. And I did so on the basis that there should be no preconditions, and uh, I certainly stand over that invitation. This doesn't end uh, on October 31st. Uh, you know, some people I know have become weary of Brexit, and they may take the view that um, this should end on October 31st, either with a deal uh, or with no deal. Um, this doesn't end on October 31st. Uh, if there is a deal, we're going to enge- enter into several years of negotiations on a new free trade agreement with the UK and a new economic and security partnership. Uh, if there is no deal, uh, then at a certain point we will have to begin negotiations again. And the first items on the agenda will be citizens' rights, the financial settlement uh, and the solution to the Irish border. So Brexit uh, isn't a storm that we weather uh, or a severe weather event that we prepare for. It is a permanent change in relations between the European Union, including Ireland, uh, and the United Kingdom. Taoiseach Leo Vratker in Belfast yesterday. There is a consensus of sorts uh, when we hear people speak in this country about Brexit, but not everybody is of the same view. Uh, it's tough watching the ridiculous behaviour of uh, the Taoiseach Leo Vratker and his foreign minister, Simon Coveney, trying to destroy, like willful children, relations with an ancient and friendly neighbour. This is the view of uh, Bruce Arnold, who's uh, a well-known journalist in this country. He was writing in The Telegraph last week and he spoke about independence and freedom and how we should understand independence and try to secure independence and freedom for Ireland. Yet now, here we are trying to block the UK's path to the same independence and freedom. He said, this is painful and embarrassing stuff. Just to read a little bit more of Bruce Arnold's article from The Telegraph for you, just to give you a contrarian view, if you like, because he spoke about the humiliations of three May having to go over to Brussels cap in hand and come back with nothing and that the European Parliament had a brief walk-on part in the humiliations to approve the draft agreement. They seemed from time to time to be sniggering behind their hands at this unfortunate woman who was betrayed on all sides. What bothers me most, he said, is that the political leadership of Ireland is happy to be the cheerleader for these tormentors, yet their cheerleading operates in terms that makes no sense at all. Vradgar and Coveney are increasingly unsafe certain fools. Their desire to be players in a game they don't understand is causing their clothing to unravel and their minds to lose their way. Their determination to work against the UK's desire for a smooth and prosperous Brexit will in the end leave Ireland diplomatically estranged from its most important trade and political partner. With some satisfaction, I say that public opinion in Ireland is at least questioning their policies. 
Uh, I'm not sure who Bruce Arnold is speaking to, but he says Brussels is using the Spaniel-like Euro eagerness of the Irish government for its own ends. Once Brussels gets what it wants, it will dump all interest in Irish concerns. Spoiler alert for Vradker. Once Brexit is settled, stand by for Brussels to undermine your Irish corporate tax rates, which international investors find so alluring. And he spoke about uh, the Nice Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty in his article saying that to secure uh, yes vote to the Lis- uh, Lisbon Treaty uh, that uh, very significant sums of money were made available. And uh, he could concluded his article by saying, if you want to understand Vradgar and Coveney's behaviour, the Lisbon sellout is the key. Irish politicians are honest. When they're bought, they stay bought. These uncertain fools have now led Ireland to be engulfed in a crisis as Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister, seeks to lead Britain out of the EU either before or after an election. Yet again, we face a crisis of democracy with Little Ireland and the huge EU refusing to recognise the democratic decision of the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. The ridiculous country in which I live is helping Europe in this abuse. As I say, that's the views of Bruce Arnold in an article that he wrote for The Telegraph last week. This man might agree with him. Well, I'm deeply saddened that the EU now seem to be refusing to negotiate with the UK. The Prime Minister's been clear. He wants to negotiate a good deal with the European Union and he will apply all the energy of the government and ensure that in a spirit of friendliness we can negotiate a new deal. British Minister Michael Gove uh, speaking yesterday. Meanwhile, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, here was speaking over there. He was on Newsnight on television, on BBC television last night and he spoke about about the support that Ireland is enjoying from the European Union. Oh, well, I can look you in the eye and say that the European Union and the Irish government have been engaging with each other now for three years to find our best way through the challenges that Brexit could bring. It is absolutely not a case here of the Irish government in any way going to the European Union and saying, give us more flexibility. Uh, that in in some way the European Union is constraining our ability to deal with Brexit. The opposite is the case. And Pascal Donoghue went on to tell BBC's Newsnight uh, that uh, no deal is now a credible possibility. Uh, I believe that a no-deal Brexit and the United Kingdom leaving the European Union without a deal uh, is a very credible and material risk now. Uh, and uh, I believe uh, Prime Minister Johnson feels differently about the relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union and the future trust of that relationship to how Prime Minister May would have. Uh, and I believe that has added a new dynamic into where we are on Brexit. Are you scared, Minister? Well, I have a real direct appreciation of what a no-deal Brexit could mean for the Ireland, the island of Ireland, for the Irish economy, as somebody who lived in the UK for many years, as somebody who has got real deep personal links with the United Kingdom, I know what the consequence of Brexit could be. So am I scared? I'm not scared because I also understand the strength of the Irish economy. I also understand the imagination and the ability of the island of Ireland to respond back to new issues that we would face. But I do have a real appreciation of the scale of what those issues could be. The Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, speaking on BBC's Newsnight on television last night and brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.